the top 17 non-Cato foreign policy think tanks in town um, and the events that they've hosted since October the 7th. Um, and depending on how you code these events, you can count on one hand um, the number of events that have looked at the conflict in the Middle East specifically with an eye to the prospect of horizontal escalation to include the prospect of the United States uh, entering this conflict and it's expanding the conflict. So I think this is a very serious problem and there's, there's been a dearth uh, uh, of attention paid to it in Washington. So this event is a small effort uh, to remedy that deficiency. Um, of course, this, this current uh, uh, outbreak of violence in the Middle East began on October the 7th um, when the Hamas attack uh, crossed border into Israel from Gaza. Um, killed, uh, I, I initially had had 1,400 Israelis, but the numbers that I've been seeing recently have gone down to 1,200, a lot, uh, an enormous amount um, of Israelis. Um, President Biden subsequently sent one and then a second carrier strike group uh, to the region. One of those is currently in the Eastern Mediterranean. The other has come around and is just outside the Persian Gulf. Um, the statement of the U.S. Secretary of Defense is that the purpose of these deployments is to, quote, deter hostile actions against Israel or any efforts toward widening this war following Hamas's attack on Israel. Uh, there are other deployments, fighter aircraft, a marine expeditionary, expeditionary unit, uh, and other forces that have been deployed to the region under similar rationales. At the same time, the Biden administration has signaled in other ways that it wants to limit uh, escalation of the conflict in a variety of forms. Um, it, it has tried, uh, allegedly, to limit uh, the Israeli campaign in Gaza, um, and it has uh, also signaled that it does not want a second front to open uh, in northern Israel with the border with Lebanon. Um, Lloyd Austin held a call with his counterpart in Israel uh, to emphasize that point over the weekend. Um, in one report alleged that some in the Biden administration, quote, are concerned Israel may be trying to provoke Hezbollah uh, and create a pretext for a wider war in Lebanon that could draw the United States and other countries further into the conflict. Um, that was roundly denied, uh, but published uh, in Axios nonetheless. We haven't even gotten to the other conflict, the other uh, region, part of the region in which conflict would erupt, which are the scattershot deployments of the United States in Syria uh, and Iraq. There is an ongoing tit-for-tat conflict happening there already between the U.S. deployments that exist in those countries uh, and regional militias, mostly backed by Iran. There have, at my last count, been 56 attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria since the 17th of October. 59 U.S. troops have been injured in those attacks. None have been killed. There have been three U.S. responses to those attacks, which have killed uh, a number of militia members uh, uh, in those attacks. At the same time, the administration claims that this back and forth, which is happening, uh, is, quote, separate and distinct from the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas. This sort of strains credulity because during the period from January of 2021 to March of 2023, those same deployments only suffered 83 attacks from regional militias over a larger than two year time period. So in less than a month, they've suffered 56 attacks, whereas in the previous two years, uh, they had suffered 83 attacks. And at the same time, in conclusion of this sort of setting up of the problem, the administration has said, uh, should war come, we are ready for it. 
President Biden says, quote, American leadership is what holds the world together. He says that we are the essential nation. And his Treasury Secretary says the United States can, quote, certainly afford to fund the Ukraine conflict and the current conflict in the Middle East involving Israel and Hamas at the levels the administration sees as necessary for the time span the administration sees as necessary. So it's this context into which uh, we wanted to look at uh, the prospect uh, for the United States uh, to enter this conflict. And we're going to get at it from a variety of different angles today. Um, I'm going to introduce the uh, panelists in the order in which they'll speak. And I want to say at the outset, this was not intended to be such a Cato-heavy panel, and it was not intended to be a mantle. Uh, we had a, a participant uh, pull out at the 11th hour, uh, and we were very happy to be able to, to pull in one of my colleagues to substitute for her. So I just wanted to sort of uh, put that on the table at the outset. Um, the first presenter is going to look at the war powers questions at stake here. What authorities is the president claiming to have uh, in hand uh, to enter a conflict potentially? Um, and what, uh, how do those authorities stand up to legal scrutiny? Um, dealing with those questions is my colleague Gene Healy, who's the senior vice president for policy here at Cato. His research interests pertain to executive power and the role of the presidency, as well as federalism and overcriminalization. He's the author of Indispensable Remedy, the broad scope of the Constitution's impeachment power. He's been looking at impeachment for reasons that are probably obvious over the past several years. Um, and also the author of my favorite of his works, The Cult of the Presidency, America's Dangerous Devotion to Executive Power. Uh, which I think was uh, 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 remains, unfortunately, uh, a useful clarifying work. Um, he obtained a BA from Georgetown University, about which we'll hear more later, and a JD from U Chicago Law School. Uh, I also found out, despite being a friend and colleague of Gene's for 20 years now, because we're those kind of guys, I just found out today, today's his birthday, so happy birthday, Gene. Um, our second presenter is Dr. Nader Hashimi, who's the director of the Al-Walid Center for Muslim-Christian Understanding and an associate professor of Middle East and Islamic politics at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. Dr. Hashimi's research interests focus on the global rise of authoritarianism, religion and democracy, Middle East and Islamic politics, and Islam-West relations. He's the author of the book, Islam, Secularism, and Liberal Democracy, Toward a, democratic, toward a democratic theory for Muslim societies, and particularly of interest for the discussion today, he's the co-editor of a recent book entitled Sectarianization, Mapping the New Politics of the Middle East, which was co-edited with Danny Postel. Dr. Hashmi obtained his PhD in political science from the University of Toronto, and Dr. Hashmi will talk a little bit about the various actors across the region, their capabilities, their incentives and interests, uh, and how those may uh, contribute to either escalation or non-escalation, as it may be. And then finally is Jordan Cohen, my colleague who's a policy analyst in defense and foreign policy studies at Cato. Um, he has been the co-author of the Cato Institute's Arms Sales Risk Index since its inception, and his research interests include arms sales, alliances, and Middle East politics. He obtained his PhD in political science from George Mason University across the river in Virginia. So with that, I'll turn things over to Gene Healy to talk eight or 10 minutes about what the administration is claiming in terms of war powers uh, and your candid thoughts about those claims. Thanks, Justin. Uh, I think that all sets the stage nicely for the question I'm supposed to address uh, according to the invite. 
does the president have the legal authority to bring the United States into the war? And the answer to that question is no, of course not. Uh, certainly not uh, according to the original understanding of the Constitution's war powers provisions, and not even according to the loosey-goosey living constitutionalism version offered up by the president's lawyers in the Office of Legal Counsel, at least, I'd argue, not according to a fair reading of that doctrine. Uh, in the next few minutes, I'll make that case, uh, walking us through some of the various legal provisions at play here. Uh, but then I'll end with a depressing question. Does the president's lack of legal authority matter? Uh, will it actually tie his hands uh, if he decides to, to go beyond the current uh, few drive-by retaliatory airstrikes in Syria and decides to, to wage a wider, wider war with Iranian proxies and perhaps Iran itself. Um, and the depressing answer to that depressing question, uh, probably not. Uh, so happy birthday. <laughs> uh, let's start with the original understanding of constitutional war powers. Uh, our Constitution's framers, broadly speaking, believe that going to war should be difficult. Uh, that it should get an open public debate in Congress and require consensus across both houses and the executive branch. In the original constitutional scheme, the president's military powers are mostly defensive. It's the, the, described as the power to repel sudden attacks, not to launch them whenever he thinks it might be a good idea. Uh, if you're looking for possible uh, presidential constitutional sources for presidential unilateral action, uh, where would they be? Uh, the first sentence of Article 2 gives the president the executive power in the John Yoo theory uh, during the Bush years. Uh, a lot of weight was placed on this clause, penumbras and emanations from which uh, gave the president the power to launch wars. Uh, but the framers rejected a a monarchical model of the executive power. The executive power in our Constitution is principally the power to execute the law, to faithfully execute the laws that, and decisions that Congress makes. Um, Article 2, Section 2, of course, makes the President the Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States. But as Hamilton explained in Federalist 69, that clause merely makes the president the, quote, first general and admiral of U.S. armed forces. And while generals and admirals have an important role, they generally don't get to decide whether, when, and with whom we go to war. Uh, virtually every military power you can find in the Constitution is in Article I, which lists the powers that belong to Congress. It's left to Congress to raise and support armies, to make rules for their use, to provide for calling forth the militia to execute the laws of the Union, and to declare war. And that power to declare war was understood broadly as a real limit on presidential freedom of action. Uh, that's reflected in the drafting history of the provision. The Madison's notes from the convention describe it as leaving to the executive the power to repel sudden attacks, uh, to repel and not com to commence war. 
It's reflected in the ratifying debates. Pennsylvania's James Wilson uh, explained to the Pennsylvania Ratifying Convention that this system will not hurry us into war because it would not be in the power of a single man to embroil the country in such distress since the important power of declaring war is vested in the legislature at large. And it's also reflected in the war powers practice of the early republic and how presidents understood their own war-making authority. During the first four presidential administrations, the U.S. was on the receiving end of multiple acts of war uh, from Indian tribes, from illegal capture of uh, neutral shipping uh, by England and France, the impressment and kidnapping of thousands of sailors uh, by England, and during this period, uh, Presidents Washington, Adams, Jefferson, and Mad Madison believed that the Constitution restrained them from going beyond the line of defense in response to these acts of war. Uh, as Washington put it in 1793, the Constitution vests the power of declaring war with Congress. Therefore, no offensive expedition of importance can be undertaken until after they shall have deliberated upon the subject and authorized such a measure. So in the current conflict, conflict, is there anything the president can point to to credibly argue that Congress has deliberated on and authorized a wider war with Hezbollah and or Iran? Again, no. Uh, over the last few decades, uh, every time we've wanted to do something new and stupid in the Middle East, uh, the usual candidates for statutory authority have been the 2001 and 2002 authorizations for the use of military force, or AUMFs. The 2002 AUMF is the authorization that Congress passed in October of that year to give George W. Bush authority to go after Saddam Hussein. Uh, its operative clause empowers the president to, to quote, defend the national security of the United States against the continuing threat posed by Iraq. Uh, unless he's going to do a magic find and replace to switch all the cues to ends, uh, that AUMF doesn't authorize a new war against a different, much bigger country uh, two decades later. The 2001 AUMF, of course, is the joint resolution that Congress passed three days after 9-11 to target the perpetrators of the September 11th attacks and anyone who harbored or aided them, uh, al-Qaeda and the Taliban, basically. It's often been described as a blank, a blank check because four presidents in a row have stretched it to underwrite a generational war against all matter of uh, jihadist groups that uh, you know, didn't exist uh, at, at the time of 9-11. Uh, and that have loose connections at best to the authorization's original purpose. Even so, it won't, it won't stress, stretch far enough uh, to cover this case. Uh, and for what it's worth, the administration has already disclaimed the 2001 AUMF as a possible source of authority for a wider war. Uh, in a press briefing last month, the Pentagon's press secretary said that Hamas and Hezbollah are not included under the 2001 AUMF because they're not successor organizations to al-Qaeda. Uh, 
What does Joe Biden think of, of all of this? Uh, well, he was elected in 1973, um, and after a man spends uh, five full decades in politics, it's uh, a fair question whether he really has any genuine opinions left at all. Uh, but for what it's worth, during his 36 years in the U.S. Senate, Biden amassed a, a fairly decent war powers record, uh, periodically standing up for the principle that it's Congress and not the president that gets to decide whether and when we go to war. Uh, he spoke up for that principle during George H.W. Bush's 1989 uh, Panama invasion in the run-up to the Gulf War in 1991, and even when it was uh, when it involved the president of his own party, uh, when Bill Clinton uh, threatened to invade Haiti in 1994, Biden warned him that he didn't have that authority without Congress. And Biden held to that view as recently as the 2008 election cycle. Uh, there's this candidate executive power survey uh, started that year by the reporter Charlie Savage, then with the Boston Globe. And in it, uh, Biden was asked specifically about the president's authority to bomb Iran without congressional authorization. His answer was short, sharp, and unequivocal. Uh, quote, the Constitution is clear, except in response to an attack or the imminent threat of attack, only Congress may authorize war and the use of force. On the campaign trail around the same time, uh, then-Senator Biden even promised uh, that, quote, if George W. Bush takes this nation to war in Iran without congressional approval, I will make it my business to impeach him. Um, hard to do from the Senate. Uh, but, uh, but uh, you know, I appreciate the sentiment. Um, yeah, of course, since the 2008 cycle, uh, some things have changed. Joe Biden has had 11 years in the executive branch, uh, eight as vice president and going on three now as president. So, of course, this isn't what he says now. Uh, he has grown in office, and his view of the presidential war powers has grown along with him. Uh, Charlie Savage kept doing those candidate executive power surveys through the next five election cycles after 2008, and Joe Biden kept revising his answer. Uh, the latest round, uh, which was published in September, about three weeks before the Hamas attacks, uh, Savage asked... Uh, now President Biden, again, about whether the president has unilateral authority to go to war with Iran. Uh, Biden now says the Constitution vests Congress with the power to declare war, uh, a, a power that re includes the requirement to authorize uses of force that would result in prolonged and substantial military engagements. As is well established and as the Je Department of Justice has articulated, across several administrations, the Constitution vests the president, as commander-in-chief and chief executive, with the power to direct limited U.S. military operations abroad without prior congressional approval when those operations serve important U.S. interests and are of a limited nature, scope, and duration. Biden's new constitutional theory is also, as he alludes to, 
the official executive branch theory, courtesy of the Department of Justice's Office of Legal Counsel. Uh, OLC has been called the president's law firm, uh, the sort of OJ's dream team for defending uh, unilateral presidential power. And they've evolved uh, a two-part test for unilateral military action by the president. Uh, one, do the military operations contemplated by the president serve sufficiently important national interests to let him get away with unilateral action? And two, are those operations limited enough in nature, scope, and duration such that they don't rise to the level of a war in the constitutional sense? And there are a number of problems with this test, uh, starting with uh, you can't find it anywhere in the actual Constitution. Um, and for another, the, the first prong, does the contemplated intervention serve sufficiently important national interests, isn't even a legal question. I mean, if you genuinely wanted to know whether bombing a particular country was in uh, the best interest of the United States, uh, you know, w and you earnestly set out to get the best answer to that question, uh, of all the people you might consult, would the president's in-house counsel be very high on that list? Even so, uh, OLC's view, which is Biden's current view, isn't quite the dark Brandon theory of presidential war powers. It's not John Yoo. It's not limitless. Again, for what it's worth, there are acknowledged limits to what the, even under this theory, to what the president can do without Congress. In OLC doctrine, there's such a thing as war in the constitutional sense that needs to be authorized by Congress. If the president goes too far, he can encroach, uh, in theory, on Congress's power to declare war by creating conditions in which the decision is basically taken, effectively taken out of their hands. Um, and in the second prong of that two-part test, OLC says you're supposed to consider the nature, scope, and duration of the military intervention uh, in assessing whether that prong is satisfied. Uh, you're supposed to consider the risk of escalation, uh, whether uh, U.S. forces are expected to suffer or inflict uh, substantial casualties, uh, whether the engagement is expected to be uh, prolonged and substantial. Well, I, I'm going to leave it to my co-panelists to lay out the specific details here, but I think it's fair to say that all of those risks are very much present in the current conflict. Uh, I keep saying for what it's worth, but what's it worth? Uh, all of these same escalatory risks were also present in January 2020 when President Trump ordered a drone strike on senior Iranian governmental figures, including uh, General Qasem Soleimani. Um, and OLC wrote a memo uh, rationalizing that decision. Most of it is blacked out and redacted, um, but the the serious risk of a wider war from assassinating a senior governmental figure in a country of a country we're not at, we weren't at war with, um, still in OLC's judgment was not enough to rise to the level of war in a constitutional sense. 
Uh, so in the current conflict, if uh, President Biden feels that his hand is forced or decides that a wider war is in America's interests, uh, it's it's a, a pretty safe bet that the president's law firm will almost certainly give its blessing to whatever he wants to do. Earlier, I quoted uh, Pennsylvania's James Wilson, uh, who said that the system devised by the, the framers will not hurry us into war. It will not be in the power of a single man to involve us in such distress. That was the way it was supposed to work. Uh, it's not the way that it works now. In what happens next, we, uh, for better or for worse, are going to have to depend heavily on one man's prudence and self-restraint. A very sobering note on which to close the, that, part of the <laughs> that part of the discussion. Professor Hashimi, talk to us a little bit about uh, who's who over there. Thank you. Thank um, you. Thanks for the invitation. Just a shout out to um, the Cato Institute for hiring two, I think, of the most um, astute and erudite analysts of the Middle East, broader Arab and Islamic world, Mustafa Akiol and Jonathan uh, Hoffman. Um, um, I rely a lot on their analysis for my own understanding of the region, so I wanted to give them some public recognition. So the question um, uh, that brings us together is how serious are the risks of another U.S. war in the Middle East? And my argument is that I think there are short-term risks that we have to think about. There's longer-term risks of an expanded war in the Middle East that flow from the Israel-Gaza war. I think the longer-term risks that I want to focus much of my remarks on is the much greater risk because it's going to add another layer of instability onto an already unstable Middle East, increasing the prospects of volatility, chaos, disorder down the road that will inevitably drag the U.S. into the region, repeating and expanding what we've seen over the last month, but at a much higher level. Uh, that's where I think the real danger is. So in terms of the short-term risks, they've already been sort of hinted at um, a little bit. Let me just say a few words on the short-term risks uh, of a U.S. Um, expanded war um, involvement in the Middle East that flows from events on October the 7th. So since the beginning of the war in Gaza, there has been daily skirmishes on the Israel-Lebanon border. Um, Hezbollah has fired anti-tank missiles at Israeli outposts along the border. Israel has conducted airstrikes on Hezbollah positions um, um, uh, in Lebanon. Ten Israeli soldiers and civilians have been killed, and more than 60 Hezbollah operatives and several Lebanese civilians have been killed roughly over the last month. Israel has evacuated tens of thousands of people from the border area, um, um, warning of a potential Hezbollah sort of military strike on Israeli territory. Behind the scenes, we have reports now that the U.S. Um, and the White House has asked Secretary of Defense Austin to express uh, his concern to the Israeli military leaders about an escalating Israeli military action in Lebanon. The United States is trying its best to contain the expansion of the war into Lebanon. So I think there are sort of risks of the Lebanon-Israeli sort of um, uh, border expanding into uh, a broader war. But I think at the same time, it's important to appreciate there are deep constraints that Hezbollah um, is, are operating within. And we sort of saw a sort of a, a sign of this when Nasrallah gave his speech about a month ago. And the constraints basically are the following. At the end of the day, you know, Hezbollah is a Lebanese organization. It has to operate within Lebanon. Lebanon is a deeply fragile and broken country. 
Its economy is in tatters. 80% of the population lives in poverty. It has a broken political system. In 2006, uh, Hezbollah started a war with Israel. It didn't end very well for Lebanon, and Hezbollah took the blame. Other Lebanese factions said, look, what the hell did you do, do to us? And, 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 and Hezbollah took a, bit, took a big uh, beating up from other Lebanese political forces, and it's very conscious of that fact. So I think those are the big constraints that are gonna restrain Hezbollah from getting involved. But of course, we don't know. If there is a mass expulsion of Palestinians into Egypt, that's gonna increase the political temperature, it's gonna increase the prospects of, Leban uh, of, of Hezbollah firing more rockets, and things can spin out of control. So I think those are the, that's how I view in a nutshell, you know, what's happening in Lebanon with respect to Hezbollah, I have to say more. With respect to US-Iran tensions and attacks on American, you know, assets and troops in uh, Syria and Iraq, um, it was mentioned that, you know, since this crisis broke out, there have been an increase um, attempts by Iran to attack American assets, uh, military bases, etc., in Iraq and also in Syria. The United States has retaliated several times. Um, according to Axios, 56 U.S. personnel have been um, injured. A combination of traumatic brain and minor injuries uh, have been reported, but it's also been reported that they've all returned to work. So we're going to we've seen that type of back and forth. It's probably going to continue at this level. Uh, the Biden administration has taken the rare step of sending a message to the senior Iranian leadership not to target American troops. I don't think the Iranians are going to listen, but at the same time, I don't think Iran wants to get involved in a broader regional war um, for reasons of its own national security calculations. And I think, broadly speaking, Iran is benefiting um, quite a bit by now without getting involved militarily in a direct way by this changing landscape that we're seeing in the Middle East. How is Iran benefiting um, um, by this changing political landscape? Well, the global focus now is no longer on Iran, its internal repression, its nuclear program, its uh, regional destabilization. The focus now uh, by the world is on, on Israel and Gaza and on the human suffering there. That plays to Iran's benefit. Iran doesn't want the spotlight on its human rights record. It wants the spotlight on re other regional countries who are engaged in gross human rights violations. Secondly, Iran, um, since the Arab Spring, has had a problem with the Arab Street. The Arab Street is Iran's basic constituency. After Iran strongly backed the Bashar al-Assad sort of uh, repression campaign against the protesters, Iran's stock in the region among the Sunni population dropped significantly. Now that's all changed. Iran is projecting itself as the one country that cares about the Palestinians, that cares about the suffering of what's happening in Gaza, while all of the regional countries were just about to jump into bed with Netanyahu. And so Iran likes to draw that distinction between itself and what the other regional countries were doing. It gains that way by trying to extend its soft power into the Arab world. And of course, the Gaza crisis also allows Iran to break out of its isolation uh, diplomatically. It's not a coincidence that um, there was a recent summit in Riyadh where the president of Iran, Ibrahim Morisi, was invited. I doubt if that would have happened at this time had this crisis not happened. It allows Iran to be part of these regional discussions and situate itself as a major actor in the region. Uh, so those are the way, that's the way that Iran sort of benefits. And so I think broadly speaking, the short-term risks of a major war that will draw the United States into the region are quite limited, but that could change if there's an escalation in what we're seeing in Gaza. And I think the operation in Gaza is still in its early phases. We don't know how this is gonna play out. I'm really concerned about the longer term problems. And I wanna inject something here, a point of view that is rarely heard in Washington, D.C., but I think it's foundational to the topic that brings us together. These are the dark days of Middle East history, replete with torture states, corrupt ruling elites, repressed civil societies, 
and detention centers that are overflowing with political detainees. Authoritarian regimes are ascendant everywhere, while democratic opposition groups and social protest, protest movements are severely repressed uh, across the region. When judged by the key indicators of democratic development, civil and political rights, press freedom, censorship, women's representation, the status of minorities, state-sanctioned executions. The countries of the Middle East and North Africa have the lowest scores in the world. Adding to this grim picture is the expansion of mass poverty and economic destitution for hundreds of millions of Arabs and Muslims. Data on global inequality reveals that the Middle East, despite its abundance of wealth, has some of the highest wealth inequality scores in the world. The World Inequality Lab co-directed by Thomas Piketty reports that the Middle East is the world's most unequal region where the top 10% capture 61% of the national income. This mass pauperization of the region is a key reason why this, the future of this region is deeply in doubt in terms of the prospects for stability. The Middle East and North Africa also has the highest un youth unemployment rate in the world. And it's held that position for the last 25 years. Over 30% of young people in the region are unemployed. Opinion polls consistently reveal that the vast majority of young people in the Middle East and North Africa want to immigrate somewhere. This region has one of the highest population growths in the world. Uh, in 1950, the Middle East and North Africa had a population of about 100 million. In the year 2000, it had a population of 380 million. In, 200, in, in the year 2050, it will have a projected population of 722 million people. This is a perfect storm for a coming societal explosion that will affect not just the region, but the entire world. The picture becomes even glimmer if you look at sort of the, the, the organizations that monitor global peace and security. The Middle East and North Africa uh, region remained uh, the world's least peaceful region, and this was according to the 2021 um, Global Peace Index. Many of the most unstable countries in the world are located here, and the Middle East has held that distinction since 2008. Um, if you look at other monitoring groups that monitor sort of global conflicts in the world, such as the International Crisis Group, instability in the Middle East and North Africa always ranks at the top. So this is a region where the uh, political stability of the region is very much in doubt, and I'm not really getting to the Israel-Gaza component of this um, at, at this moment. I'll say something about that in a few seconds. So this is the broad socioeconomic reality that shapes the Middle East and North Africa today, and that very few people in Washington, D.C., and in other Western capitals want to grapple with. Um, so the Middle East, in a nutshell, is facing a series of overlapping and mutually reinforcing crises that will eventually contribute to some sort of deep political instability that will lead to um, collapsing states, many of them US allies, that will force the United States to respond. So there's a human rights crisis that the region has seen, the worst in its modern history. There's an economic crisis, there's a youth unemployment crisis, there's a refugee crisis, there's a collapsing and fra fragile state crisis, there's a crisis of good governance, there's a crisis of political legitimacy, and on top of everything else, there's now a new crisis that's going to sink this region deeper to the bottom, and I'm referring to the climate change crisis. The climate change crisis disproportionately affects the Middle East as opposed to other parts of the world, adding to the region's instability. So 
In many Western capitals, when we gather together to talk about the problems of instability and war, we rarely deal with these underlying socioeconomic, political, environmental factors that I think are really at the basis of the instability of this particular region. The quality of lives of the average citizen are getting worse, and the prospects look incredibly uh, bleak in, in the coming months and years. Um, recent events that we saw prior to the October 7th crisis, the floods in Libya, the earthquake in Morocco remind us of the deep fragility of life facing millions of poor people throughout the region who are often forgotten when we gather together to talk about this particular uh, region. The focus up until now, as all of you know, um, uh, from a U.S. foreign policy perspective with respect to the Middle East was the wonderful things that could happen if only we could get uh, the Saudi regime and the Israelis to normalize relations. There was a broad bipartisan consensus in this city that a new mega deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel could transform the region and this would be um, a major leap forward in terms of promoting global peace and security. And of course all of this is predicated of this, on this long-standing myth that shapes foreign policy thinking in this city, the myth of authoritarian stability. The idea that somehow these authoritarian regimes are going to pre pre preserve social order, preserve stability, protect American interests, when in my view it's the exact opposite. It's the policies of these authoritarian regimes that are producing the instability, the mass pauperization, the grievance, the rise of, the rise of radical extremists, etc. Um, and just take a look, just to cite one example among many, take a look at the authoritarian stability thesis and apply it to what's happening in Sudan today. And get back to me on how well that's working out. A final word on Israel-Palestine. So we in the United States in the West, we can't solve all of the problems that I've just referred to in terms of the Middle East. Many of these problems are rooted in age-old questions as to what constitutes good human political economic development. But what we can do, and I think what we must do going forward, is to tackle one important cause of the instability in the Middle East that continually draws the United States militarily into this region, and that is the Israel-Palestine conflict. The United States has enormous leverage over the key players that it could theoretically use to advance a just and lasting settlement of the Israel-Palestine conflict, the contours of what a just and lasting settlement of the Israel-Palestine conflict could look like, enjoys broad international and regional support, and they've been enshrined in international law documents in many UN resolutions. I'd be happy to go through, it, go through them if you want. You should be familiar with them already. I think if the United States were to take this on, it would obviously not solve all of the problems in the Middle East, but I think solving the Israel-Palestine conflict, as we're seeing today, could remove one important layer of the instability that this region is facing. It would uh, prevent, I think, the United States from continually deploying assets to the region, always being on this war footing. And I think it would sort of at least push things in a very substantive uh, way in the right direction. The last point I want to make about um, you know, what's going on in Israel and Gaza today, and it hasn't really received much attention, is that this particular conflict, the violence, the, you know, the atrocities, what's happening in Gaza, um, the rise of Hamas, is actually um, a perfect storm, a perfect situation for recruiting more people in the direction of radicalism and militancy. In the case of Hamas, if you know anything about the organization, they get recruits from going to families who've lost loved ones and saying, look, 
this is join our side. We're going to get you justice, and we're going to get you retribution if you if you sort of sign up to our political project. So that's that's one reality that's going to happen. Even if Hamas is completely eliminated, it's not going to go away. Some iteration of Hamas or some variants of that is going to manifest itself in the coming uh, months and years. Regionally also, there's the problem of Al-Qaeda and ISIS, who are going to exploit this moment to gain new recruits, drawing upon the mass misery, poverty, lack of hope that people have, and then pointing to Israel and Gaza and say, look what the West is doing to us once again. Look at the double standards. Look at the hypocrisy. Look at the value that the United States placed on an Israeli life, and look at the value that the United States doesn't place on Palestinian lives. Don't buy into the values, the worldview, the, the, the alleged commitment to human rights and democracy that the West claims it stands for. Look at what it's actually doing. Come over to our radical project and let us build a new world. And the last point that I'll make, if you know anything about radical extremism in the Middle East and the philosophical origins of it, all of the leading theoreticians of radical extremism in the context of political Islam pointed to the question of the Israel-Palestine conflict as justification for their radicalism. Bin Laden said he got the idea for 9-11 from watching Israel's siege and bombardment of Beirut in 1982. Um, Sayyid Qutb comes to the United States right after the creation of the State of Israel and is shocked why everyone is supporting and celebrating the creation of the State of Israel, where from his perspective, the State of Israel translated into the expulsion of three quarters of a million Palestinians. And he didn't understand why the United States doesn't get that, and that contributed to his radicalization. So there's a lot to say about how these particular events that we're watching right now are going to produce much more instability, much more extremism, much more recruits in the direction of al-Qaeda that will then manifest themselves in some sort of violent attack, bombing, assassination that will then implode the region and draw the United States in, exactly as we saw after September the 11th. Thank you, Professor Hashimi. We've had, Jordan, we've had this juxtaposition of, of course it would be against the law, but it probably doesn't matter. We might be all right in the short term, but in the long term, there are these huge structural forces uh, that are going to portend uh, uh, big, important problems. So see if you can do this great juxtaposition of, on the one hand, on the other hand, with respect to the United States. Yeah, and so I think one thing I've learned about the Middle East since I really started studying it in high school, then through college, master's, PhD, and working at Cato, is quite literally I'm really bad at predicting what the U.S. is going to do in the Middle East because it feels oftentimes completely irrational. So with that said, I, I'm not going to tell you what the likelihood of horizontal escalation dragging the U.S. into uh, a broader Middle East war is. I just I don't know. But what I am going to do is kind of do some just generalized like military analysis and bean counting to kind of describe the costs of U.S. action if U.S. chooses to get involved for whatever reason. Ultimately, and again, I'm bad at predicting this, so, so take it for what it's worth, but I, I see two real avenues where escalation could drive U.S. direct action in this conflict. The first avenue is Hezbollah, and uh, if Hezbollah expands the war, and I really do think that is possible. I think the Israeli government at least thinks it's possible because the Axios report Justin talked about when he started did show that, it, and it did say that the Biden administration fears that Israel is trying to get Hezbollah to attack to drag the U.S. into war. And, I, and the second, I think, is Iran. But I'll get to Iran after I talk about Hezbollah. So. Oftentimes, when you hear especially kind of Israelis talk about Hezbollah, they reference 2006 and that 
yeah, 2006 was costly, but Israel beat Hezbollah pretty good. They, they destroyed Lebanon pretty good. The problem with that argument is that the Hezbollah of 2006 is not the Hezbollah of 2023. The Hezbollah of 2023 has somewhere around 100,000 fighters ready to fight. They have somewhere around 150,000 rockets, uh, thousands of which are precision-guided. They have anti-ship missiles, including the Russian Yakant missile, which is one of the best anti-ship missiles kind of in production. It can travel about 186 miles, and it can carry a 440-pound explosive and armor-piercing warheads. So any naval battle, like happened in 2006, Hezbollah is a lot better prepared for. I, I would also point out that Hezbollah is better prepared to attack Israel. And while the Iron Dome has come a long way, uh, Hezbollah has short-range rockets, right? Again, they have 150,000 rockets. The short-range rockets can occupy the Iron Dome. And the Iron Dome may be able to take them out, but, but that's really what it's geared for. Hezbollah also has kind of more medium-range rockets. And Israel has, the, has David's Sling, which is an Israeli production, and it mainly is designed to kind of fight these in intercept medium-range rockets. But what Hezbollah didn't have, at least to the degree they do now in 2006, are cruise missiles, long-range cruise missiles. Uh, Israel does not have the air defense capabilities to deal with the bombardment of these precision-guided cruise missiles. And while Hezbollah doesn't have a limitless amount, they, they do have enough to cause damage. Uh, for example, they have an M600 missile that can travel 155 miles. It can carry a half-ton warhead, and it's, ac it's pretty, pretty accurate about, uh, about kind of, uh, I think the number I have here is uh, a dozen yards off its target uh, accuracy. So it's pretty accurate. Uh, ultimately, what all this means is that any t if Hezbollah expands in Israel, they can basically hit any target throughout the country, and they will do damage. In 2006, it took 150,000 artillery rounds for Israel to defeat Hezbollah. Uh, Hezbollah is much stronger now. It's going to take more than that. And this is where U.S. entry becomes important. Uh, if the U.S. decides to enter, I think the first thing it's going to do is try to provide Israel with artillery to fight against Hezbollah, as well as some sorts of missile defense systems. So uh, 155 millimeter shells, uh, if you've heard about those, they're, they're really kind of a thing in Ukraine. The U.S. doesn't have a lot of them. The U.S. produces about 24,000 a month. Uh, for context, Ukraine is firing 6,000 of these a day. Uh, Israel's going to need them in, in any conflict with Hezbollah. And I think the U.S. is going to try to provide what it can. But it really does mean the U.S. like right away is removing a key aspect of its artillery just to help Israel. Uh, they're also going to, Israel will need air-to-surface missiles, especially if Hezbollah launches a multi-front attack right from Lebanon and from Syria. And again, the, the U.S. just doesn't have a ton of these, and they're wanted by U.S. clients. So the first thing that I'm really trying to point out here is that if Hezbollah joins, Israel's going to need things that are wanted by Taiwan that are wanted by Ukraine. So it is going to force weapons calculations on behalf of the United States, and that means places like the Indo-Pacific are probably going to take the loss here, right? They're not going to get weapons they're asking for. Uh, beyond that, any direct U.S. military action beyond just weapons transfers is very dangerous. Hezbollah can likely hit targets 
anywhere across the Levant and potentially throughout the Middle East. I did some research in the Levant right now. Uh, the U.S. has over 6,000 troops, uh, and it has over 45,000 in the Middle East proper. But let's just focus on the 6,000. Hezbollah can hit those troops very likely from anywhere, right? So right away, there is a military cost for the U.S. entering, which is the U.S. troops that are already there are at risk. Now, obviously, military entry means even more U.S. troops. And so all of a sudden, you're talking about multi-thousand U.S. troops are at risk just from Hezbollah, right, just from Hezbollah entering this war and the U.S. using that as a uh, reason to enter. Um, I'd also point out that if Hezbollah enters while the war in Gaza is happening, so this is more in the short term where, where I agree with Professor Hashemi that I think it's probably unlikely, but if it does happen, right, if Israel's still fighting in the tunnels, that they, they probably don't have the total number of troops to fight a two to three front war that Hezbollah joins, which means any U.S. entry likely could require U.S. troops fighting along kind of the, the Israeli borders. And again, there's just a risk there. The U.S. is entry into this war risks U.S. troops. And while it seems easy to just say, oh, well, it's Hezbollah, they're a terrorist organization, in many ways their arsenal rivals that of many modern militaries. So it's not nothing. Uh, and with that said, compared to Iran, Hezbollah's risks to the United States are pretty modest. Um, I... This has been something that's bugged me since I was in high school, where everybody just says, oh, well, the U.S. can go in, bomb Iran, in and out. And that totally ignores how Iran has built its military, right? So, so the weapons it purchases for its military are there primarily to defend Iran. Uh, they, they are primarily defensive. They are primarily designed around preventing access into the country. Uh, for example, they have the Bavar 373, which is a long-range air defense system that many military scholars think is actually stronger and better than the Russian S-300 and the U.S. Patriot system. It can detect up to 300 targets at one time uh, with a range of 180 miles. They also have short-range weapons like the Kordad. Uh, they have anti-aircraft missiles that are kind of more medium-range like the Syed 2C, which has actually in the past hit U.S. Uh, US targets. What these weapons really get at beyond just broadly, they have ballistic missiles. They have in the thousands of ballistic missiles, including medium range. Uh, per the Congressional Research Service, Iran is the most capable unmanned aerial vehicle kind of department in the entire Middle East. Uh, just doing some other research by the pure numbers, Iran has the 15 largest amount of manpower in the world and that the, the can fight in the 13th largest fit-for-service population in the world. They have the 13th most armored vehicles and self-propelled artillery in the world. They have the ninth most towed artillery in the world and the eighth, eighth most mobile rocket projectors in the world. What I am trying to get at here is Iran is really good at preventing access into Iran. Uh, Iran's kind of anti-access area denial capabilities by many kind of military analysts mean that they could ostensibly put an umbrella that is untargetable from the Persian Gulf to the Gulf of Oman. That means any U.S. entry that requires direct action against Iran is going to cost a lot of U.S. troops. Uh, estimates is in 2019 suggested U.S. ground entry into Iran would take about 
1.6 million troops, uh, U.S. troops, which is an enormous number, but I don't think the U.S., again, I'm not great at predicting this, I don't think the U.S. is irrational enough to try a ground invasion of Iran, at least initially. I think it would ostensibly start by kind of using air and naval to attack it, but again, that's going to cost a lot of U.S. weapons systems, a lot of U.S. aircrafts, U.S. ships, and U.S. service members. Uh, beyond that, right, if the U.S. is going to war against Iran because of this, that means Israel is also under threat from Iran. Uh, the Federation of American Scientists reported in 2012 that in this situation, right, where uh, Iran attacks Israel, which escalates and drags the U.S. into war, in the first three months of a conflict alone, it would cost the global economy $2 trillion. Uh, Iran's military is even better now than it was then. So if anything, that estimate's probably on the low side. It would cost Israel a lot of money. A uh, 2012 Business Data Israel report, which is a consulting firm, suggested it could cost in the first month of the war, cost Israel's economy $42 billion in the long run. Uh, it, it's pretty significant. And again, I, I point to what I pointed to when I was talking about Hezbollah. The U.S. has a lot of troops in the region. Iran can definitely hit U.S. troops. We're seeing that now. If the conflict escalates, we'll probably see it more. And finally, if the U.S. enters to fight Iran, it's very unclear to me what a win looks like. And this is my problem with kind of Israeli policy so far, uh, and especially threats of U.S. entry. I see very little definitional answer to what the strategy is, what the goal is, right? Eliminating Hezbollah, Iran, and Hamas is not a strategy any more than me learning to fly tomorrow is a strategy. Uh, frankly, it is just not possible based on the equipment and military that are available. So the question that the U.S. has to ask itself, and again, I, I just unfortunately am not seeing this, is what does helping Israel win this look like? Uh, right now, I think the costs are just going to be really high, and any win is going to have massive losses attached to it. So I guess my kind of end point here is, I really do urge the U.S. to consider what the costs of aiding Israel in a direct conflict either against Hezbollah <coughs> or Iran looks like because there are going to be costs in weapons transfers to the Indo-Pacific. There are going to be costs to U.S. troops. There's going to be costs to the global economy. And I think really U.S. goal right now alongside Israel should be to deter any of this from happening. Uh, so with that. No, thank you, Jordan. I wanted to um, usurp the moderator's privilege before we go to the to the meet space audience here and to the virtual audience. Um, you can ask questions online on Twitter and YouTube and Facebook using the hashtag CatoFP. Um, but I wanted to usurp, at the risk of getting a little bit further afield, Jordan, you, you led me down this path, so I'm going to, uh, to, to ask Professor Hashmi to weigh in on it a little bit. Right, we've heard a lot about the, the kind of amorphous or, or uh, underspecified, let's say, um, Israeli objectives in Gaza, right? It's, it's, it's to prevent another October 7th, which is sort of scrutable, and I can get my hands around that. It's to eliminate Hamas, to the, eliminate the Hamas leadership. And, and so you've heard different characterizations from different individuals, et cetera. But it's clear that um, there's going to be some sort of political denouement of this campaign. Something is going to emerge politically in Gaza um, after this campaign. And, and some of us in the department have been kind of concerned um, that war and terrible suffering tends not to empower the most liberal actors in a society, modest claims department. Um, 
do you have a read of the political evolution? And again, this is asking you to predict. I apologize for doing so. But do you have a read of the political evolution you think is more or less likely uh, as this campaign, if and when it concludes? You mean in, in Gaza? Yes. In terms of what Israel is planning politically afterwards? In terms of what is likely to emerge afterwards. Um, well, I think there's a tension now between what the United States has stated it wants and what Israel has stated it wants. The United States has said ha there has to be some sort of Palestinian um, um, leadership and govern governance structure over the Gaza Strip that is linked to um, what we see in the West Bank. And that sounds very nice, and I think the United States would very much like to package that as sort of a form of Palestinian self-rule. Sure. But of course, if you know anything about what's happening in the West Bank <laughs> under the 87-year-old uh, leadership and dictatorship of Mahmoud Abbas, that's not a step forward for the Palestinians. It's just extending, in other words, a dictatorship from the West Bank into the Gaza Strip, um, which is something that I think the United States would be very comfortable with. But that's even a bridge too far, it seems, for Netanyahu. I think there's another dynamic here that Netanyahu knows that his political future is over because he was Mr. Security on October the 7th. And um, I think the only way he can survive politically is to drag this war out as long as possible. Um, what's going to happen afterwards, uh, we don't know. There's a scenario where there's, there's actually a, a notorious Palestinian, I'm, I'm not sure what the best word is. I would call him just sort of a Palestinian sort of um, security man who actually is from the Gaza Strip was very much connected to the um, Palestine Authority, but now works very closely with the government of the United Arab Emirates. His name is Mohammed Dahlan. Mm -hmm. He happens to come from southern Gaza. He's very much, I think, someone who they would like to see come back to Gaza and rule Gaza, you know, in close coordination with, with Israel. So I suspect that might be one particular scenario that we're going to see. But at the end of the day, you know, whatever these, you know, plans are, um, the bottom line remains, and this is something that I think most people who are honest and objective instinctively know, but not many people, at least in Washington, want to publicly state that there can be no security long term for the state of Israel at the expense of the Palestinian people. Their security is deeply linked to the Palestinians having some stake in a stable future, which allows them self-determination, either uh, in a separate state or in some sort of unified state where there will be equal citizens. Barring that sort of, you know, ignoring that part of the equation is simply to perpetuate, I think, the Israel-Palestine conflict in very destructive ways that ends up killing a lot of innocent Israelis and Palestinians at yeah. the end of the day. Yeah, the idea of bracketing the question away I mean, we're sort of living with exactly. the, the, the wages of that. Gene, I wanted to talk to you. You talked a little bit about getting away from legal concepts and getting into uh, sufficiently important national interests, campaigns that are limited enough in scope and duration. Um, these are witchy political science concepts, security studies concepts, not these uh, uh, discrete legal concepts. And I wanted to ask you about um, uh, the Biden administration's uh, war powers reports that they've uh, sent to Congress. They've been uh, good. Uh, 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 they've filled out their TPS reports on time. That's always good to see. Um, but they've justified the strikes that they've used in Syria to retaliate for these militia attacks. Um, the first one uh, was justified that they were trying to, quote, establish deterrence with these militias, which again are witchy political science concepts, not really legal or much less constitutional uh, concepts. And the second uh, War Powers report that they sent to Congress was to reaffirm deterrence. So having in the first strikes 
established deterrence, they then reaffirmed that deterrence with the second strike. Um, are these new concepts to be introduced for the authorization uh, of the application of American military power overseas, or is that uh, have I just not been paying close attention? I, I look at that as less of a legal concept and more as a rationalization. Uh, I mean, clearly deterrence was not established as the pace of attacks is, continues to go up. Um, but, you know, there were these drive-by airstrikes uh, on Iranian proxies, you know, in Syria, we've seen recently several times, uh, even before uh, October 7th uh, in the Biden administration. They're all, uh, you know, they're justified under the, you know, the legal authority they, they cite in the, the War Powers Notifications is, uh, you know, generally Article Two, uh, Executive Power and Commander-in-Chief. Um, the more interesting legal question is what's the authorization for the continuing presence in, right. in Syria? Uh, the initial authorization was uh, statutory, or the justification was statutory under the 2001 AUMF as part of the anti-ISIS campaign. That in itself was a heck of a stretch, uh, given that ISIS didn't exist, uh, you know, uh, in 2001, and uh, could not really be described as a successor organization to al-Qaeda, and in fact was uh, various times openly at war with, with al-Qaeda. Um, so, but, you know, leaving aside the, the fuzzy uh, and tendentious initial justification for that deployment, um, there doesn't seem to be any uh, legal, statutory, domestic war powers justification for that deployment at all now. Um, and uh, you have a situation where we're forward deployed in bad neighborhoods and we get shot at, and then the legal justification to shoot back is defensive Article 2. Uh, you know, it, prior to October 7th, it would have been a good idea to wind down our presence over there. Um, now it seems, uh, you know, absolutely imperative. Yeah, no, that's quite right. I'm normally, like my children, uh, enraptured by these devices, so I'm going to do my best not to do that and to go to the audience here in the flesh uh, first. Let me ask, um, wait for the microphone. We have microphones on either side. Um, uh, please identify yourself in any affiliation you may have, and please ask your question in the form of a question, if you will. Um, there's a gentleman right there that I see under the lights with glasses on, and it looks like a gray sport coat. Yeah. My name is Roger Cochetti, and um, I am a retired business executive. My question has to do with a foundational presumption on the part of the American public that um, any war activity invading Libya, Afghanistan, Serbia, Vietnam, Korea, Panama, you name it, involves overseas commitments. Um, but they can't hit back. We could do whatever we want to Ho Chi Minh. He can't do anything to us. In the worst case, we just pull out. We could do whatever we want to, you name it, and the, the, they can't do anything to us. In the worst case, you pull out. No one has addressed the question 
of uh, whether or not any of what you've been discussing about the Middle East exposes the United States or continental United States or the, 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 you know, the Republic to any vulnerability because if it does not, then okay, we made a mistake, we'll pull out and we've done that with Afghanistan, we've done that with Vietnam, we know how to do that. So is there an exposure of, of risk to the United States itself? Thank you. Can I channel that question two different ways to two different panelists? One, um, Gene, there's been a the introduction of a new legal concept that it means something when they can hit back, that the definition of a war uh, is bounded by whether or not they can hit back. So I wanted you to touch on that. And Professor Hashimi, there was a question that I think is related to this that I had been thinking about as a non-regional expert. Um, but there is kind of a question about um, you know, the U.S. standing in the region is not in a great position, if I can make another modest claim. Um, there's a lot of uh, frustration, to put it mildly, um, with the U.S. position as it stands today. Joe Biden, not a very popular guy um, in the region. Is there any risk of a resurgent anti-U.S. terrorism threat uh, looming here? So maybe, Professor Hashmi, if you want to take it first. Yeah, I mean, I think there is. I think the difference um, in terms of U.S. foreign policy, let's say, in Vietnam and the geographic distance from our adversaries, I think that whole calculation and assumption um, completely changed after September 11th when we saw that these extremist um, elements and you know terrorists using you know the realities of globalization can actually hit us on our own shore. We also saw this again on 9/11. Uh, sorry, on uh, with the rise of ISIS, where you know radicalized sort of young people, many of them you know not necessarily directly directed by ISIS, but can be radicalized online because of social media, will then take it upon themselves to hit American targets. Now that doesn't fundamentally, I think, jeopardize the safety and security and stability of the United States, but it does have huge psychological effects on the American population in terms of how they view their safety. And so I think with this particular crisis and with the perception of the United States being very one-sided in terms of how it deals with human suffering in the case of Israel-Palestine, that's going to increase the sentiment and the ability of these radical extremist elements to, you know, just put something online and, and, and someone might see it and then take it upon themselves to do what they, uh, what we've seen happening not too long ago in terms of sort of attacks in major American cities. So I think that's really the one you know, um, you know, differentiating factor that I think we have to be aware of. Yeah. Gene, can you, is it a war if they can't hit back? Uh, yeah, it's funny that, uh, that not being able to hit back actually became part of uh, war powers uh, legal doctrine uh, during the Obama administration uh, in Libya. Um, you know, I was pretty rough on the Office of Legal Counsel uh, in my remarks, but in the case of Libya uh, in 2011, uh, they, for you know, the rare occasion when they weren't willing to just uh, bless and rationalize anything the the president wanted to do. Of course, they uh, they wrote a memo justifying the initial uh, bombing of, of Libya uh, under that two-part test I talked about. But when they ran up against the war powers resolution time limits, uh, 60 to 90 days, um, and it turned out that our NATO allies really didn't have the capability to keep uh, uh, bombing, um, 
President Obama looked for a justification uh, for bypassing the time limits of the War Powers Resolution. And in this case, uh, OLC was not willing to, to give it to him. So he went forum shopping to the State Department's legal advisor, uh, Harold Coe, who wrote an opinion that said that, uh, you know, I'm paraphrasing uh, here, but uh, the essence of which was it, you're not engaged in hostilities within the meaning of the War Powers Resolution if you're bombing a country, but they can't hit you back, uh, which is really an extraordinary, uh, uh, you know, just as a legal justification, but also, uh, you know, from uh, an internationalist, you, you know, putative humanitarian president that uh, you, if you can drop bombs on a country, but uh, they don't have a good chance uh, of... Uh, returning in, in, in kind by conventional means, uh, that it's not really a war. It's really only a war if uh, an actual American might get killed. Um, and also, but as your, as your question, uh, you know, suggested, uh, you know, conventional means are not the only way that uh, targeted states can, can, uh, can reply. Uh, you know, certainly, you know, in a wider conflict with Iran, uh, I think we would have to take very seriously the, uh, the possibility of unconventional responses. Yeah. All right. In honor of my kids, let me go to Minecraft or whatever this is here. Um, Dan asks a question. Um, I appreciated Professor Hashmi's remarks about constraints on Hezbollah due to the political dynamics in Lebanon. He asks, do similar or different constraints exist on Iranian proxies in Iraq and Syria? In your opinion, how much control does Iran exercise over its so-called proxies in Iraq and Syria? So the kind of principal agent uh, question there about uh, who has his finger on the trigger. Um, well, Iran has a lot of influence over those proxies because it funds them, it finances them. I think Iran wants to utilize them as a form of leverage over the United States um, as it feels it comes under pressure by the U.S. and its allies in the region. So I think those are primarily the constraints. It's really, it's less about what those actors on the ground are doing, how many resources they have to recruit to pay their militias. It, it's really what decisions are made by their, primarily, by, by their primary patron in Tehran in terms of how much it wants to um, use those proxies to, um, to hit out at American targets. And we've seen this fluctuate because if you recall, just before October the 7th, there were reports that is, Iran wanted to make this deal for the prisoners that it held in exchange for the money. It had instructed its proxies, and there were reports widely in the mainstream press, that the, the amount of attacks on American troops and bases in the region has, had decreased significantly um, because Iran wanted to create an environment where it could strike a deal with the United States to get that money. Um, so I think that's how it basically works. So a considerable amount of leverage. A considerable amount of yeah. leverage, yeah. Okay, good. Let's see if we have another person. We have someone uh, right down here in the front row, if you want to, yeah, come right there. Yeah, I'm Ken Meyergord, unaffiliated. Uh, two recent uh, developments uh, that I'd be interested in what the significance is of. One is the Saudi-Iran rapprochement, and the other is uh, three of our erstwhile allies Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Egypt uh, joining the BRICS group. Um, I'll, I'll answer those very quickly. Um, I think there's been a lot of exaggeration about a Saudi 
Iranian rapprochement. When the news first broke, it, it was being portrayed in some quarters as if Iran had, and Saudi Arabia had struck up some sort of new alliance. And you know, the United States and Saudi Arabia had turned its back on its previous allies. I think there's just a realization that um, there needed to be a detente between these two regional powers. You have to understand uh, Iranian-Saudi relations in the context of the up and down roller coaster relationship that they've had since the Iranian Revolution in 1979. It's always fluctuated. It's gone up, it's gone down. Now it's gone down because I think there's a realization that there's no benefit to keeping the tensions going. So I think it's very fragile. The underlying strategic view and um, uh, prospects for the, the future of the region are still fundamentally different when looked at from the perspective of Tehran and Riyadh. So the, the, the differences are still there. I think this rapprochement is very superficial. It can easily come undone. I think the, is, the interesting thing is now because of the crisis in Gaza, that has elevated this topic um, and it's going to create conditions for Iran and Saudi Arabia to at least nominally come together and issue statements like we saw in Riyadh over the weekend. But the underlying reality and tensions um, that separate these two countries still remain there, and easily we can get back into a period where these two countries are back in uh, conflict with one another. I suspect, I'm, I'm going to guess here, but if Trump comes into you know, office once again in this country, we can see a repeat in the tensions between Saudi Arabia and Iran if Trump sort of starts to back those same political forces directed by Jared Kushner with the Saudi crown prince. I think the Iran-Saudi relationship there can take a nosedive very quickly, reproducing what we saw during the Trump years. Um, we need another conference for that one. <laughs> but very quickly, BRICS, I think, is yes. exaggerated. You know, I, I don't think... No, no, no. I mean, in, in the yeah, I mean, so they played a role because, I mean, they played a role largely because they were the only power that had relations with both sides, right? right? The United States doesn't talk to one of the sides. So we were excluded from that perspective. So I think China wants to insert itself. I think politically they want to stick it to the United States. Look, we've brought these two adversaries together. You're trying to isolate Iran. We're bringing Iran out of the political isolation. It's a small sort of... But I, 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 I wouldn't exaggerate China's role in the region. China's not going to get involved like the United States is. It's going to try and sort of view, you know, manage things from a distance. But China is benefiting politically in huge ways now because of this crisis. Because right now for young Arabs and Muslims, they're watching what's happening in Gaza and they're saying, this is the West, this is the United States, this is Israel. China's not killing us. China's not brutalizing us. Maybe the Chinese worldview, you know, that we're hearing might be a better alternative. So China is going to manipulate this and milk it for all it's worth. Um, but I don't see, you know, China going beyond what it's doing already to intervene in the region militarily, at least not at this stage. One thing I'd just add to that pretty quickly about the exaggeration is Saudi Arabia's military is like close to 100 percent dependent on U.S. weapons and U.S. action. So no matter what China says, Saudi Arabia is not going to want to give that up. So I think that their involvement is somewhat limited based on. As Professor Ashmi said, they're the only country that has relations with. Although, although the Saudis will milk it and say, "Look, give us what we want," sure. but you know, Joe Biden, or we're going to China, <laughs> yeah. and that scares people in Washington D.C. But I yeah. don't think it's going to happen for the. Yeah, read the arms sales twenty-two arms sales risk index for more on that. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I wanted to go back here to the computer. Um, Dr. George Simpson asks, and I guess this is mostly for Professor Ashmi, um, if Israel. So we, again, we've heard varying statements about objectives. It, we, we don't want it to go. We don't want the PA to come in. It can't be Hamas or something. It looks like Hamas, et cetera, et cetera. So, so if, if, if the 
longer term, bigger Israel vision for Gaza were to come to fruition. Um, with neither Hezbollah nor Iran making a much more concerted effort to prevent this from happening, what would that mean for Iran standing in both the Arab and Muslim worlds? That is to say, you said, you know, in the short term, there are reasons to be maybe not optimistic, but less pessimistic. But then do those reasons for less pessimism drop off if the Israelis reveal a much bigger vision for I, what I think doing. that benefits Iran ideologically, because Iran is going to say, look, there's another Palestinian population that has been ethnically cleansed, depopulated, oppressed. Uh, the West has stood, not only has the West not stood aside, Iran will say, the West has openly backed this new displacement of Palestinians, and all of these Palestinian deaths, you know, um, that we're seeing, they're happening as a direct result because of, of U.S. and Western arms sales. There are American weapons that are killing these Palestinians. Iran is going to milk that scenario, whatever Israel has planned, you know, um, even in its most expansive way, if Israel tries to completely occupy and control the Gaza Strip, either directly or indirectly, Iran is going to milk that ideologically. I don't I don't think Iran is going to, I mean, he really doesn't have any military options to try and insert weapons there, but it's going to sort of step up the propaganda effort to expose its regional allies who, stand, who sit on the sidelines and going to remind everyone, look, we're supporting the Palestinians. We're very, we're, we care about the Palestinians. We're our Arab allies. You know, look what they were doing just before October the 7th. They were all trying to jump into bed with Netanyahu. So I think that's how Iran is going to play this um, uh, going forward. It's going to try and um, make those arguments, but also appeal to the Arab street, which is its primary constituency, by saying, look, we are the country that is standing up for the oppressed masses in the Muslim world, which, of course, is a complete sham because it's completely selective. Right. Look at what Iran has said about the Uyghurs. Right. Um, not right. only has it not said anything, it's openly supported China's policy on the True. Uyghurs, so it's very self-selective here. But at least in the context of the Arab world, it's going to make these types of arguments. But you think even in that scenario, it's more of a public diplomacy, preening type of thing? There's n there is not... A, an enormous amount of pressure on them to do something military. Well, I think the risk could, I mean, what can they do? They can perhaps spend more money. Um, any Palestinians living in the region perhaps can get training in Iran and backing. I mean, can they, they can do those types of yeah. things. But Iran really doesn't have a military option unless it wants to risk a major war with Israel or and the United States. Or Hezbollah. I mean, I, I view th those th two things as the same. If Hezbollah tries to attack Israel in, in any capacity, it's going to only do so if it gets the green light from Iran. Right. And I think Iran uses Hezbollah law as sort of a key asset in its national security doctrine. If ever there's a moment of crisis where Israel or the United States try to bomb Iran, that would be a red line for Hezbollah to launch attacks on Israel as sort of a, as a, as an attempt to shift the equation. Well, and Hezbollah is like Iran's offensive military. I mean, right. in a lot of ways, like yeah. that, that's how they attack. Great. Let's go back to the audience. I see, let me take two because I keep seeing people down in the front because of these darn glasses. Let's take the gentleman in the front and then there's also someone in a sweater next to the wall there. So maybe if you can come down to the front and you can go to the wall. Now I'm directing traffic here. Um, yeah, we'll take the front first and then the wall. Thank you. Thank Please. you. No, you, yeah, yeah, sorry. Uh, Jeff Steele, American Legion. Question is from uh, Mr. Hashimi on the um, authoritarian stability theory. So if that's not the way forward, short or long term, and there will be no repeat of George W. Bush's idealistic crusades to democratize the Middle East. But democracy must be the way forward if authoritarian stability theory is not. How does that happen? Well, I think the, the problem here is sort of what our expectations are at the beginning. If you're sort of suggesting we can turn on a light switch 
or engage in one policy position and everything is gonna be wonderful in the Middle East. That's not how it's gonna work. As I said in my comments, the fundamental roots of instability are rooted in these deep, long-term underlying questions about social, economic, and political development. And so there's no quick fixes. But what is sure, and what is guaranteed, is that these authoritarian regimes are not the guarantors of stability. They're, in fact, the producers of instability. So like any sort of you know, project for political development, good governance, democratization, we have to have the political stamina, the patience, the willingness to invest in these types of things over the long term, knowing that along the way there's going to be setbacks, there's going to be progress. But I think if we invest in these types of policies and planning, then over the long term we'll see a better and more stable Middle East. If you want to keep you know, throwing fuel to the fire here, um, adding kerosene to the burning sort of catastrophe and thinking you're going to get something good out of it, well, go ahead. You know, I, 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 don't see, I don't see that producing anything positive. I think these authoritarian regimes, I was just making a list, you know, of sort of the, um, the, 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 the layout of the region. You know, outside of the Gulf area, you just see a combination of failed and failing states, one after the other. Egypt, Syria, Iraq, Tunisia, Sudan, Yemen, Morocco, Libya, Jordan, Algeria, Lebanon, you know, et cetera. Um, you know, Iran is not, it has a, a lot of internal problems itself. Um, so, I mean, that's the landscape, and these authoritarian regimes are not the solution. So I think, I think what really is needed here from a U.S. foreign policy perspective is the need for a very new, robust, forward-looking, bipartisan grand strategy for this region. Um, that, that we are committed to, that we invest in, and we hope to get the, the, the results, not in you know, the next five to 10 years, but in the next 30 to 40 years. I think that's the way we have to look at it. But I think one of the problems is that our politics in this city revolves around short-term electoral cycles, is deeply influenced by the corrupting influence of private money and private capital and lobby groups that shape and warp our policy. I, I think U.S. foreign policy is probably one of the most undemocratic aspects of our political system. So there are these deep structural problems that prevent us from, I think, doing what is needed to be done. So that's how I see it. You know, um, if, if someone think in this room thinks that you know the Abraham Accords is a, is a solution to the problems of the region, if we can only get these corrupt Arab dictators to jump into bed with Netanyahu, and that's going to bring peace and stability to the region, go ahead. I think that's a recipe for disaster. I, I'm out of my uh, lane here, uh, <laughs> my area of expertise, but wouldn't there be a case for uh, you know, after the last 30 years? Uh, trying a period of benign neglect uh, as far as the U.S. trying to uh, uh, improve outcomes in the Middle East? Um, it depends on what that means uh, in terms of the details. What is uh, what Military withdrawal uh, and, uh, I, I don't know, I suppose uh, uh, coming to a more realistic view of uh, our capability to forge a lasting peace uh, in Israel and Palestine? Um, the, pr the problem with the, the last part of the question is that we're deeply involved in Israel-Palestine by virtue of our strong support for Israel. And because of that strong support that has gotten stronger since October the 7th, there's no incentive for any Israeli political leader to compromise knowing that they'll always have the backing of the United States, which then produces this situation where you know, Netanyahu can do whatever he wants knowing that there's going to be no consequences from the United States. So I think you know, if we're going to be giving Israel all of this uh, support, 
political, moral, diplomatic, financial, then that should establish a set of you know, responsibilities and, and sort of questions that we have to ask. What are we doing with this investment? Do we want to sort of condition, as I think we should, you know, our support for Israel on Israel making serious moves toward a just resolution of the Israel-Palestine conflict. So, you know, I think we can't have it both ways. If we're going to continue to support some of our allies by virtue of this form of support, well, then we have to ask ourselves, well, what's the payoff here? What's the calculation? Um, yeah, I think, you know, pulling out some U.S. troops from some parts of the region, I'm, I think that... Uh, it's something we should be seriously considering. We have to ask ourselves what the consequences are. I wouldn't like to see Russia to fill in the void or Iran to fill in the void. I don't think those are steps in the right direction. I think, broad, broadly speaking, I think U.S. foreign policy, properly rethought and recalibrated, can produce better outcomes. But that would require, I think, a serious sort of fundamental paradigm shift um, where we sort of reconsider these assumptions that have informed U.S. foreign policy for such a long time that, you know, our allies in the region are these authoritarian regimes. Let's just keep backing them, and hopefully they gonna, they're going to sort of support us in the end. In the end, we see failed states, failing states, and no one in, in Washington really willing to sort of reconsider that calculation equation. And so I think this is one of these moments, these crises. I do view what's happening in Israel-Palestine today as a transformative moment, and, and perhaps, you know, think tanks like Cato and others can sort of do the long-term deep thinking over how we got to this crisis, you know, how can we get out of it, how, do we, how can we think new thoughts, how can we redirect U.S. foreign policy in more, I think, productive ways. Um, so I'm not, I'm not of the view that we should just unilaterally sort of disengage. I think in some areas, yes, in some areas, no, but I think it has to be very carefully calculated in terms of what the risks and benefits are. But I think one, I think one shift that should happen and must happen is this is this sort of, you know, this deep investment in authoritarian and repressive regimes, thinking that these regimes are going to sort of help us in the end. They're not. They're in many ways the root of the problem. Yeah, I think primum non nocere is where, you know, first do no harm would be made. Mm. <laughs> the, first, the, the lowest mm. common denominator between the two views. Don't make things worse, which we've been mm. doing far too much of for far too long. Let's hope that this last question is a sunny, optimistic one that can no. bring this. I'm uh, even more, I'm Stan Best, and I'm even more depressed than when I arrived. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm an economist. The, the professor makes an excellent case for the dire economic situation throughout the region. Should we be thinking about the equivalent of a Marshall Plan for the Middle East as, as a long-term solution to this problem? Um, I, I've advocated for that uh, a long time ago. Some American senior officials have also made that uh, argument. I think that fundamentally is what's needed. But of course, it's not just a question of throwing money at the region. There has to be the proper accountability for how that money is spent to make sure that, you know, we're getting an investment, we're getting a, re a reward on our investment. But I think s something like that, yeah, is fundamentally what's needed. It turned Europe around, you know, after World War II. There was a big fear that, you know, parts of Europe are going to go communist unless we sort of, you know, invested in not just the economic future of, 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 of Europe, but also the political future of Europe. And I think looking back over, you know, what happened in Germany, what happened in Japan, I think those are investments that we can be very proud of because they did produce the types of outcomes that we, I think, um, can be proud of. Something like that is going to be needed in the Middle East. Um, you know, good luck in trying s in, in selling that equation here in Washington, D.C. Yeah. 
except I, I worry that in this metaphor, parts of the Middle East are already communist, and so we would have to have to yeah to start start a different <laughs> start over. Yeah. World War II hasn't happened yet. So again, to bring it back to the most morbid uh, uh, theme of this this show today, I want to thank all of the panelists uh, for participating in this. I think it was really important to get some of these themes out there uh, and get them under discussion. Um, I'm very appreciative for their time. I'm appreciative for the people who came out in the meat space. It's always good to come to events, even you people online watching. Um, it's always good to come, and mostly because we have sandwiches upstairs, which are just terrifically delicious. Uh, I'll invite everyone to join us upstairs and to join me in thanking the panelists for this discussion. Thank you all very much. Thank you so much, Professor. Thanks. Appreciate it a lot.